hello, listeners. Welcome to TMX the podcast. My name's Doug Clark. I'm the head of market structure and equity market design for TMX Group. And today we have our second installment of our subchannel, Crossing Intents. Crossing Intents is an adult conversation around the market structure issues of the day. Today we're going to be talking about market structure perceptions and misperceptions, trying to determine what is really going on in the market and what needs to be fixed and what is working well. If it wasn't for my partner, the bid to my offer, the black to my shoals, the PB to my J, TMX head of research, Corey Garriott. Corey, welcome. Thank you, Doug. Our last podcast, Corey, we spent uh, about an hour talking about a number of SEC proposals around wholesalers, retail flow, best execution, and execution standards. And those have now run the course of the request for comment periods. The letters are in. And as we're reading the letters, there are thousands of letters from U.S. mostly retail investors saying that market structure is broken. And there are a number of complaints. We've seen some of those leak up to venues north of the border. We've seen them on social media sites like Reddit. And so today we're going to be addressing some of those concerns. We're going to be talking about why there are so many markets. We ourselves are, are looking to bring another market to Canada, Alpha X. But one of the concerns is that there's too much complexity, too many marketplaces. Why do we have them? So we're going to talk about some of that. We're going to talk about some of the issues around HFTs and those nasty, nasty dark pools. We think it's important that we set a level playing field, that we help people understand why these structures have been developed. What drove the development? What's the future? Who's winning? Who's losing? Who's being disadvantaged? So today we'll give reasons for why these things appear in our market structure. And we want to just harp back to the one thought Not broken does not mean perfect. We can always improve on things, but that doesn't mean that what we have is a broken structure. That's right. I think after the fallout of the GameStop affair and these perceptions of behind-the-scenes manipulation of orders gave a lot of retail traders pause and reason to maybe speculate on uh, why it is that exchange groups such as TMX Group keep complexifying the market structure, introducing interesting order types, different degrees of transparency, enabling certain clientels maybe without enabling others. And we want to give traders reasons why we do these things in market structure. And it's not just because we need jobs. It's because we think that we have ways to improve markets, to make clientele's experiences better. And that's partially what we're trying to do when we experiment with new trading venues, such as the ones we're trying to come out with. So what drives market structure changes? What has historically driven them? What's going to drive them in the future, high level? At the high level, you kind of zoom out here and think bird's eye view. What is it that we're always trying to do? There's a few things, but most notably, most typically, it's about segmentation. And segmentation is the division of the market into groups of people, each of them with like different needs and different behaviors. And this can be very good, and it's because of pricing. Your counterparty is willing to offer you a discount if they know a little bit about you and who you are. And this happens not only in financial markets, but in real life. It's a little like how the grocery store gives repeat customers a discount, like under its rewards program. Establishing your identity with a store can help form a basis of trust. Of course, they also use these for other purposes, like to gather data. So there's a give and a take in all of these market structure changes. Some traders even want to be segmented so they don't reveal things about themselves. This might sound a little suspicious. Why would you want to do something without revealing it? But there are a lot of occasions in life, and we'll talk about this when we talk about dark pools, when you might legitimately want to not disclose, not announce something that you're doing to the public at large. So I guess today, the market structure we're going to discuss, new order types, dark pools, new markets, these are often ways to segment customers, to provide them an experience that they that is more catered to what they need out of a financial market. It's not always a good thing. It can also be a way to corner certain customer types. But as you said, Doug, not broken does not mean perfect. So one of the first things that we, we hear often in Canada, we see it in the comment letters we discussed on the SEC website, we see it in social media, is there are too many markets. We should only have one market. We should only have the New York Stock Exchange in the U.S. We should only have the TMX in Canada. Used to be that way. And it used to be that way. If we go back many, many years, we had regionals. So when you think about the U.S. market, there was a market in San Francisco and one in Kansas City, one in Boston and Chicago. And this was before technology and in particular communications were 
effective at transmitting an order from San Francisco to New York on a timely basis. Telegraph lines only went so far, only had so much capacity, so it made sense to have regional markets. As technology grew, you then saw a consolidation. I could get an order from San Francisco into New York in seconds, which at the time was fast enough. We weren't talking microseconds back in those days. And I no longer needed regional markets to service me and having the critical mass all in one place made sense because I could match with more buyers and sellers and there was going to be greater efficiency of price. There were these gains to centralization. You didn't want to pay the bricks and mortar cost of opening up a lot of redundant trading venues when if everyone could just meet at one, you could better prices, all the prices in one place, all the liquidity in one place. So a stock exchange like NYSE or New York Stock Exchange grew to be what you might call a natural monopoly. Right. And you also didn't have any of the behavioral issues where going to one market, you think, oh, I probably could have done better going elsewhere. If there's one market, I couldn't get a better price. But as we often see when you get a sole provider in any area of the economy, the eye slips off of the client needs, innovation suffers, investment in technology tends to wane a little bit, and so you have upstarts. And so while in Canada we saw a consolidation into effectively one equity market in 2000, by that time in the U.S. we really just had NASDAQ and NYSE, all of a sudden you saw new venues popping up. We saw one of the most successful in the U.S. was a firm called BATS. And BATS was driven by high-frequency traders. We'll get into high-frequency trading in a second. But high-speed liquidity providers who were frustrated that when they sent an order to the New York Stock Exchange, it could take upward of 15 seconds to get a fill. They wanted a fill in sub-seconds. That lowered the risk profile. It gave them better certainty of execution. It allowed them to trade for smaller margins and still compete in the marketplace. So then we saw an outgrowth. We saw... Direct Edge, we saw Instanet, we saw up in Canada, Alpha and Pure. But these markets tended because there were new participants in the market, new marginal liquidity providers, high frequency traders, liquidity providers, whatever phrase you want to use. And the markets kind of got caught up with the new shiny object and started focusing order types and fee schedules and data products towards the new players and the existing large institutional players and the retail players became somewhat frustrated. They thought they were maybe second-class citizens. So what do we do when some segment of the market, a reasonable-sized chunk of the market is frustrated? Somebody's going to show up. Whether that was IEX in the U.S. or Aquis in the U.K., arguably it was TMX Alpha after we bought Alpha, who decided to make some structural changes and come with solutions that were, not to say they weren't working with the liquidity providers, but they were trying to figure out how they were working with liquidity providers to ensure that other participants could get satisfactory results, to make the market more democratic and, and perhaps not just rely on speed as the sole determiner of who won in the marketplace. I think an interesting question to ask is why a lot of this happened when it did in the early parts of the 20 aughts. We saw this moment that was like a geologic moment. It was an explosion of trading venues, uh, a major diversification of market structure. All of those markets that you talked about started getting established. And it has to do, I think, with lowering cost of technology. Whereas before, if you wanted to operate a trading venue, you had to build the physical space like the New York Stock Exchange, where traders could come, gesture to each other, see each other's faces in order to trade. In the 2000s, computer technology had gotten cheap enough that you could commodify a trading engine. You could build your own, white box it, and even sell it to other people who wanted to start a trading venue. And when that happened, it meant that the New York Stock Exchange's physical venue was no longer the only place that trade needed to occur. And if you were dissatisfied with that service, or perhaps even dissatisfied with those of the Toronto Stock Exchange, you could go and start your own place to trade. This isn't that weird. We see lots and lots of different venues to trade, even in other ordinary industries that aren't financial. There are many grocery stores. There are many gas stations, all selling the same products, gasoline. A favorite example of a Canadian academic, Andreas Park, is that we have in Canada both Craigslist and Kijiji. 
you can list the same bicycle on both markets and they compete for each other, competing for customers who feel like the market has been poorly catered to their needs. But of course, we talk about the positive of bringing new markets is the ability to cater to misrepresented groups to offer new products. There's always going to be those that just try and charge rents. So we also saw a large number of venues in Canada, the US and the UK, who were coming with little differentiation, slightly different fee schedules, trying to collect data fees, trying to create ARB opportunities. And so we saw a massive growth, as you talk about, in the number of, of venues. One strategy that a trading venue might use if it wanted to would be to take advantage of, in Canada, what's called the order protection rule. Uh, which obligates brokers to search out the best price that they can find. And even if it's at a new venue, that it can obligate them to trade at it regardless of what the fees are and their data fees and other things like that. So new venues sometimes don't offer a new service. And it's worth, I think, inquiring even of things that the Toronto Stock Exchange might be offering about what it is that they're doing that's new, that's innovative, and bring something that didn't exist previously to the market. And I think that always is the key question is what problem are you solving? Why are you doing this? If it's just a me too player, do we really need it? Do we need redundancy when we already have as many venues as we have? And interestingly enough, the pendulum always goes one way and then comes back the other. And more recently, we've seen consolidation. Global players like CBOE buying up bats, as we talked about, buying up bids, buying up direct edge. And so we see maybe not the number of actual trading venues, but the owners of those venues, the exchange groups, consolidate and potentially we're going to see fewer actual venues at some point. As we look to offer up a new venue in Canada, the question that we expect clients should ask and we better have a good answer for is, why are you doing it? What problem are you solving? Who are you designing this for? And how is that going to work? One concern that we think about when we think about having multiple markets is the concern that we are fragmenting liquidity. And this is something you hear raised not only by people writing comment letters, but also by regulators. And, you know, in my former life, I used to be an academic who wrote about market structure. I always think of this paper by O'Hara and Yi. And there's also a paper at the Bank of Canada that we wrote that echoes it, talking about the costs and benefits of markets in terms of fragmentation. Fragmentation is when you isolate a group of trading participants away from others, in particular venues. So like to go back to that Craigslist and Kijiji example, suppose you listed your bicycle on Craigslist, but all the buyers were checking Kijiji instead. And this fragments the bicycle market, as it were, and it could result in you not selling your bike or getting it at, sold at a really bad price. One thing that differentiates, though, financial markets from maybe uh, markets for used bicycles is that there are a lot of things obligating and making it easy for people to check multiple markets. There are regulations, this is NMS 611 in the US or the OPR in Canada, that requires a broker to find the best price no matter at which market it's listed. This knits together markets, it counteracts isolation. And of course, also technology. So as we were talking about the technology to create a trading engine is getting cheaper. Also, the technology to check multiple markets has gotten quite cheap. There are systems now that will do it for you. And this makes it easy to monitor multiple markets. So we don't think that fragmentation, at least in modern market structure, is as big an issue as it used to be. Indeed, the O'Hara paper looks at some stats on execution quality before and after fragmentation, and it finds either no effect or even a beneficial effect. When we looked at this at the Bank of Canada, I know we work at the TMX group now, Doug, but one thing that uh, we found is that just after some of these upstarts came to the market, like Kyx and Alpha, suddenly the trading fees at the Toronto Stock Exchange dropped. Did you know it was around a dollar at one point to trade on the Toronto Stock Exchange? And now we charge fees at the level of mills. Tenths of a penny, yes. So, Corey, we've said that fragmentation in a marketplace isn't terrible as long as there's a purpose and there's a problem that was trying to be solved and that the solution outweighs the cost to the marketplace. The next question is, are there too many damn orders, if you will? <laughs> and those were your, your words earlier. There's a lot of weird order types. It's no longer just, I want to send a buy, I want to send a sell. You can have post only, you can have long life, you can have filler kills. It goes on and on beyond the comprehension of the average retail client, at times beyond the comprehension of institutional traders. 
Are there too many orders or is this also dependent on if it's trying to solve a problem? I think order types are also something that we can explain fairly easily if we look at them and we try to think about them. Remembering that, of course, just because order types make sense, it doesn't mean that they're perfect. It doesn't mean we have the best market structure and that we can't change it. Indeed, many order types should probably be retired because we experimented with them and they've had their day and, you know, maybe it's time to wrap that up. But to me, they're just ways to communicate, right? Just like the fax machine has been transformed into email, like the way that text messages have become so featured. You can thumbs up, you can thumbs down, you can use emojis, you can start threads. There's this increased range of expression that enables you to tell the person you're talking to you more about yourself and what you want. In other words, it enables you to kind of identify yourself and what you're after. And that is, again, segmentation. So just like we have markets like BATS, like POSIT, that catered to particular client types, so too we have orders that are catered to particular client types. I guess the simplest example is that of patient traders. They use limit orders to trade, and limit orders and market orders are things that exist at almost every equity market, no matter where they are. A limit order is a offer to trade at a particular quantity and price, and a patient trader will post one of those and wait for someone else to come and fill them. The more complicated orders, like non-displayed orders, and we'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment, those are catered after block traders. Block traders want to buy a lot of a security, but they may not want to tell everyone that they're buying a lot of security. So they can file a limit order on the exchange that doesn't say how much quantity they want. There's a bunch of orders that we're thinking about experimenting with at the Toronto Stock Exchange. These are orders that benefit a particular clientele called market makers. Market makers come to the exchange and fill other people's offers to trade. They make trade happen even if there's no willing counterparty available at the time. Market makers post limit orders, and sometimes, even if the market maker has really fast computers and is monitoring all of the data and all the stuff on Bloomberg, sometimes the market will move away from them and they won't be aware of it. This can happen these days at the speed of microseconds or milliseconds. And one thing that benefits market makers is uh, if you try to trade with them, if there's a speed bump on that trade execution that delays the execution just by a few milliseconds, not much for humans, but if you're operating a market-making strategy on a computer, that can be the difference between life and death. So all these order types, and we've got a bunch of them at the TSX, and there's even more in the US, these are attempts to find ways for traders to better communicate and even segment themselves among each other so that they can say what they want and what they're trying to do. And I think in, in some cases, it's trying to protect not just the market maker, but the institutional trader who doesn't want to get run over by somebody who sees something on an away market. You're democratizing speed, but these complex order types can also protect you from just getting small fills that give up a lot of information. So if I want to buy 100,000 shares, I may want to just put something as simple as a minimum size. I don't want any fill less than 5,000 shares because I don't want people to see I'm constantly buying 100 shares, infer that I'm a bigger order, and then go and trade in the same direction as me and, and cost me money. So, so this would be an order type, for example, that says it's a dark order, it wouldn't be displayed, but you wouldn't be able to execute against it unless you do a minimum number of shares. So right. So giving me the conditions to set when I want to trade. I don't want to walk into Costco and have to buy one sheet of toilet paper. I only want to buy if I can get 12 rolls at a time. Otherwise, it's just inefficient. It's almost like a way of setting up the, which exists in, as you were saying, real goods markets, the retail versus wholesale distinction. Exactly. And so all of these markets, all of these orders are, again, ways for clients to say to each other, look, I only want to trade with certain people under certain circumstances. And that kind of gets us to, I guess, the third big topic that we wanted to talk about today when we're talking about perception and misperception, and that's dark pools. Doug, I'm scared. <laughs> it's intentional. Let's talk about what dark pools are, and let's start with the story of the first dark pool. The first successful dark pool in the U.S. was something called Posit. Posit started one Friday afternoon in Boston back in 1987, or it went live in 87. I think the actual conversation to start it was probably in 1986. A member of the Boston sales team of a firm called Jeffries took out a number of traders from some of the biggest institutions in the Boston area. And sitting around over lunch, they started to talk about their challenges. And their biggest challenge at the time was, 
when they wanted to buy large numbers of shares, they wanted to buy two, three, four hundred thousand shares of IBM or Chrysler or Ford, they would send that order to the New York Stock Exchange and invariably the market maker on the New York Stock Exchange at the time would catch wind of a large order and the stock would just seem to run away from them. And sitting down, they said, well, there's eight of us, we're some of the biggest institutions on the planet. Wouldn't it be great if there was a blind auction where I could put in a couple of times a day, I'm a buyer of a half million shares of IBM, and if there happens to be a seller, we'll just match. And if there's no seller, there's no leakage of information, away we go, and we can then go to the New York Stock Exchange or to any of these other trading venues and try and get the order done. But on those instances, and they may not be that often, but on those instances where I get that half million share trade without any market impact, that's a tremendous fill. And at the end of the day, my clients are retail pensions, they're retail mutual funds. Those retail clients' overall performance is gonna be better because I haven't had the impact of having intermediaries trade against me as soon as they figured out or sussed out my order. Posit is a classic example of a dark pool. At the time, of course, it didn't have that name, did it? A dark pool is just a venue for trade in which information about what the people are doing, about their negotiation, it's not revealed pre-trade. We could have given it a number of names, but this particular name I think was assigned by, correct me, is it the New York Stock Exchange? Yes, so the posit auction, as it was called by Jeffries, turned into, it was so successful, it turned into a separate company, uh, Investment Technology Group, later called ITG, and spurned other similar auctions. But of course, the existing legacy exchanges didn't like the new up-and-comer, and when they went to the SEC and complained, rather than complain about an auction, they complained about a dark pool because a dark pool sounds nefarious. And to this day, this was in 1987, to this day when you watch and see the debate, particularly down in the US, the phrase dark pool is an albatross around the necks of many marketplaces. John Stewart on his Apple TV show, The Program, had an episode last year where he said, these things must be evil, they call themselves dark pools. They never called themselves dark pools. It's a classic strategy where when you want to defame somebody, give them a nickname that sounds evil and ugly, and we see it in politics more so in the last few years than, than in a long time, and that's where it comes from. And unfortunately, it scares retail. What is dark pool? Why doesn't somebody want to show their size? When I trade 200 shares of AMC or GameStop, I'm not afraid to show my order on the market. Why is somebody else afraid to show their order? They're afraid because their order's a million shares. And if I know that you're a buyer of 200 shares of AMC, there's not much I can do with that. I can't profit off of that. But if I know you're a buyer of a million shares of Dell, I can profit off of that. And so the need to hide your footprint, to hide your order intent becomes that much greater and so having venues that allow you to do that, there is still very much a need for lit markets, for actual exchanges, that's our bread and butter. But having venues that allow you to trade in greater size without displaying your order intent before a trade is important for getting these larger trades done. And we talked about new venues. Posit is the perfect example of, hey, it's a new venue, there's fragmentation, but boy, did they identify a problem to solve and they came with a solution that actually solved some of it. Didn't have a 100% success rate, but when you got a fill, you felt really good about that fill. I want to tell you my favorite story about dark pools. A friend of mine who probably wishes there were a dark pool for what he was trying to buy. And I don't know, this maybe can help drive home why there are many occasions in life when you don't want to announce what you're doing to other people. My friend, Michael, if you're listening to this, this one's for you, was driving his motorcycle in San Francisco. Unfortunately, it got towed because he parked in the wrong place. He was hard up at the moment and didn't pay to get released from the towing shop. So they put it up for auction. He goes to the auction to try to buy back his own motorcycle. And while he's there, you know, he's chatting with the other people. And this guy comes up to him and asks, hey, what you doing here? And he points to his motorcycle and says, that's my bike. I'm trying to buy it back. The bike goes up to auction, he goes to bid on it, and that same guy outbids him on the bike and then buys it and takes it home. And he can't understand why this is happening at first, but then these guys come up to him and they say, did you talk to him? And he was like, yeah. And they're like, oh, let me tell you, that guy owns a motorcycle shop. 
he comes here to auction to find bikes that aren't lemons. He didn't know which ones are lemons, but if you're willing to buy back the bike because you know it's good and it just got accidentally towed, then he knew it was one of the good ones that he could get. And so that's how he lost his motorcycle. Wouldn't he have preferred not saying something to him, not saying something to other people about what it is that he was trying to do? It's a great story. The caveat, I would say, is much like what you talked about with venues, is one dark pool may solve a problem, another dark pool may solve another problem, but there are going to be Me Too players, and so not all dark pools are the same. They certainly are trying to solve different problems. Some of them are just trying to internalize a given broker's flow. Some of them are trying to try trade for size. Some of them are trying to match over the course of a day. Just because we say dark pools in general, probably, and we'll get to the academic evidence in a second, but in general, they are probably good for markets, almost certainly good for markets. That doesn't mean that each and every dark pool is necessarily beneficial or additive to the process. One thing a lot of academics, since you mentioned them, and we're going to bring some evidence to bear on this topic, is they've also found that too, Doug. They've found that the particular venue, the particular way it works, is often more important than whether it's dark or lit or any of these things. In fact, in theory, dark pools can actually make prices more accurate despite their darkness. And these are papers by Hao Zhongzhu at MIT and Bulatov and George. These pools, they segment traders. That's what all of this is about today. It's kind of been the theme. And they often work by getting rid of highly informed traders. These are traders that the large buy side institutions, working big orders that they don't want to trade with because the prices will run away from them if they reveal their trading intentions to other people too early. Well, those highly informed traders are excluded they are, they're excluded from the dark pool, which means that if they do want to trade, they have to trade in the full light of the market. And thus their negotiation and their trades are more visible. And since we can all see them, they move prices where they should go faster. So an interesting aspect of the darkness of dark pools is because they happen to segment the uninformed big money clients away from the fast money hedge funds and the big banks. They actually make markets more informative sometimes, not always. The empirical work is more mixed on it. Papers by Booty, Running, and Warner find improved pricing. Commerce and Foreign Putin's and another paper by Putin's and his co-author Folly, they find that there's an interesting kind of Goldilocks effect with dark venues. It's good to have some, and there's a sort of peak in the middle, kind of like Goldilocks and the porridge being just right. But you don't want too much darkness. And you can see the idea here. If the lit market empties out, if everyone goes off into the dark, well, there's no one left. There's no one left to form prices. So too much segmentation can actually be a bad thing. And again, as you and I keep saying, not broke doesn't mean perfect. It doesn't mean we've found the best way to do things. Some darkness, some internalization might be good. Perhaps too much of it empties out the market and it like destroys price formation. I can tell you from the Canadian sense, the first dark pool in Canada Match Now, a competitor to the TMX, started up in July of 2007. Before that, we had a little bit of on-exchange dark in the form of iceberg orders, but not really much dark in Canada. And what happened was we were still placing, where I was working at the time on the sell side, still placing the same orders onto the lit books that we were placing before. But if I was a buyer of 200,000 of XYZ, Maybe I'd have 500 shares on the lit exchange. I didn't want to put any more than that out there at a given time. I didn't want to send a signal, but I might send a slug of 10,000 to a dark pool, which is instantly executable. So there's more liquidity on market where people can trade with it. And you know you manage your risk. You don't send the whole 200,000 because you're worried that there's going to be a very quick price movement and you're going to get filled at a bad price or you use limit prices, whatever. But you get more instantly available liquidity of, at any given time. So that's part of the driver. And it, it's notable that while the lit exchanges were the ones that first vilified dark pools and, and gave them the name, most lit exchanges globally, and certainly in North America, now have dark trading on their book because they understand that if every order in its entirety is visible at all times, that's a lot of excess information leakage to the market that is going to be costly. So I'm going to give you the opportunity to put something out there to try and attract flow but at the same time, you can have something behind that that's willing to trade instantly. But I'm not going to show your full 5,000 shares. I might just show 1,000. 
I'm happy to hear that exchanges, and you know, I work at one as well, have started catering to these institutional clients a bit more than, than they have in the past. One question, and let's get to the other question, is whether exchanges have catered too much to a particular type of client that got famous in the news. And this client is called the High Frequency Trader. And, you know, it's an older question now, Doug, probably whether high-frequency traders are ruining the markets and rigging them. But it's still one that I think has some bearing on what we're trying to do today in markets. Absolutely. And we talked about how dark pools were named high-frequency traders. They're more often now called liquidity providers. They were originally called electronic liquidity providers. That got a bad name, and so they sort of rebranded themselves. And a little sharper and maybe better informed than the dark pools, they've rebranded themselves to try and stay ahead of any of the stigma. But really what happened was in the mid-2000s, you had some technological advances that allowed some players to get cheaper memory and cheaper computing and the ability to send faster orders. You had venues like Direct Edge and Bats that we talked about that were able to process orders faster. You could get a fill in milliseconds instead of 15 seconds as it was back in the New York Stock Exchange. And so these new players came to market and were trading in high speeds. And they were very sophisticated on both a speed basis and on a signal detection basis. And it took the rest of the street some time to adapt. And during that period, those players were able to charge excess rents to the market as a whole and that frustrated people, that has leveled out. The sophistication at the average sell-side firm building algos is light years ahead of where it was in 2004 because they had to adapt or die. This period of adaptation is uh, kind of associated with this kind of moral panic. New technology is often associated with concern raising. We see a similar panic, I guess, right now with AI as we have with other automations. I think the book that everyone's aware of that targeted HFT was by the journalist Michael Lewis, focusing on high-frequency trading, in particular the latency arms race, which is a legitimate concern. And, and, you know, that's part of how HFTs did earn, I guess, some of the rents, the rent-seeking behavior that we saw. But those concerns, about some of which they have been addressed, we are seeing them resurface again when we think about electronifying other markets like fixed income. And I think it's kind of important to go through some of those concerns to make sure that we understand them. You said that one of the big things that HFT does is that it exploits signals. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more. What signals do you think that it's exploiting? Yeah. If you think back to the olden days of on-exchange trading when the Toronto Stock Exchange had a trading floor, starting out in the business in the 90s, working for one of the big Canadian banks, I would occasionally go down to the floor and help out when they were short-staffed. And down there, you had one senior guy who ran the operation for that bank, and we'll call him Mike. And Mike had two mid-guys, and he had four or five juniors. And this was back in the days of dot matrix printers. Any 20-year-olds listening can Google that. But an order would come in from the firm, and on a dot matrix printer, it would say, buy 100 shares of Bell Canada or Canadian Tire. And one of the juniors would take that out of the printer, they would transcribe it onto a ticket. It was a blue ticket if it was a buy order. It was a pink ticket if it was a sell order, so you would reduce errors. If it was a small order, less than, say, 5,000 shares, one of the juniors would wander off to the floor to wherever that stock traded, and they'd buy 100 shares of Bell Canada. If the order was over 5,000 shares, it would go to the one of the midterm guys, up to 25,000 shares, and off they would go and do the same. But the senior guy would handle anything over 25,000 shares. And this is the Mike? Mike would handle 25,000 shares and more, and those were the only orders he handled. So whenever you saw Mike get off his butt, it either meant he was going to the washroom or he had a big order. And if he walked out and he had a blue ticket in his hand, he had an order, and it was a buy order. And if he had a pink ticket in his hand, it was a sell order. And he'd walk over to the pit where the stock traded, and every stock had a, a separate screen, and on that screen was the existing market for that stock, the bids and offers in the book for that stock. Well, there might be eight names trading in a given post, and he would look up at the Canadian Tire screen, and everybody in that pit would go, it's Mike, it's a big order, it's a blue ticket, it's a buy, and he's staring straight at the Canadian Tire screen. Oh, Mike. And while Mike was trying to figure out what to do, all of the local pros were canceling their offers and buying stock ahead of Mike, and he couldn't figure out why the stock was up half a dollar before he'd put in a single trade. Eventually, he clued into what was going on, brought out multiple tickets. He had a couple of pinks, a couple of blues. 
Sometimes he'd work a small order just to kind of mix it up. Sometimes he'd let one of his middle guys work one of the larger orders. He'd look at all six greens or at least four of them, take his time, and then he'd start to trade and nobody could catch the signal. As HFT have come to the market, uh, liquidity providers, they're using computers to find similar type of signals. When a firm is trading a small order, do they go to one venue versus trading a large order, they go to a different venue? Do they trade the orders in a different way? Do they trade multiple ticks through the quote? These are sophisticated players who are just going to figure out these signals. And if they can identify that there's a large buyer or seller of a given stock, they're naturally going to move that stock. They're going to buy ahead of what they believe to be a buyer. They don't have firm knowledge. They don't have a fiduciary duty, but they've caught a signal in the market. No different than if you know somebody wants to buy 14 plots of land in a given development because they're going to build a stadium, you're going to go buy one or two of those plots of, of land and try and make money off of them. And so what has, has happened eventually is the firm's building algorithms for the institutional mutual funds and pension plans have gotten smarter. They have entire teams trying to figure out what signals are we leaving. They're trying to identify their footprints. They're trying to look for any signal that there is a signal. How do we reduce our footprint? So they use the dark pools we talk about. They use the special order types we talk about. And this is how it all comes full circle. They have anti-gaming. They randomize things. I never send my orders in the same way. I try to be non-stochastic wherever possible. If you leave signals and let people know what you're planning to do in the future, you can't blame them for trying to get in front of you and trying to profit off it. That's human nature. That's how the world works. You say it's a game if anyone should feel sorry, as it were, for some of the larger institutions that are having to make these adaptations. Remember that we are paying them to trade. We are paying them to do their jobs. And, and one of the things that you want when you hire an agent to invest a portfolio for you is to adopt you know, a sophisticated stance toward the market. Another thing that I think HSTs are famous for doing is exploiting speed. That's where the high-frequency part of the high-frequency trading comes from. The attempt of HFTs, for example, uh, in the Michael Lewis book to use microwave antenna to transmit a signal faster that can be translated through a fiber optic cable, because the unfortunate thing about a fiber optic cable is that it bends when it goes to the earth and the light bounces off the interior of the cable, slowing it down. He relates that they move over to microwaves, which are straight shots at one another and thus transmit the signals faster. This might seem strange. It might seem like a new thing for traders to try to do. But traders have always tried to derive profit from speed using the above strategies. Maybe it's not good, maybe it's not perfect, but it is something that has always existed. If you look back in the 18th century, they, between London and Amsterdam, they used to send boats between the exchanges called packet boats. And if you could beat the boat by, for example, using a carrier pigeon in order to get trading information, you would do that. This was famously done, I believe, by a famous finance family, the Rothschilds, trading on the outcome of the Battle of Waterloo. You see attempts to be faster in the 20th century. A Canadian academic, Ryan Reardon, always begins his slide decks with a picture of the canopy of telegraph tables that ran above Wall Street in the old days, connecting the exchange to all the brokerage houses that used to locate nearby. They all wanted to be first to find out what was happening on the exchange and not to have a delay. There was a, another moral panic, kind of similar to HFT, in the late 90s when a number of retail traders used an order entry system called the SOES system. They were called the SOES Bandits, S-O-E-S, Small Order Entry System. And they would go and they would trade with markets. And because they were using computers, they could go a little bit faster than the market makers who were currently working on the exchange who apparently weren't using computers. HFT is kind of very similar to all of these speed improvements. It's better and cleaner, actually, in a way. I think it's because they've, as you said before, democratized speed. A seat membership at NYSE used to cost something like $3 million, and it was available in limited supply. You'd buy one of these things, so again, you could be the first. If you were on the trading floor, you could be the first to react to new information that would occur there. That meant that NYSE seats were restricted to a privileged class. But a prop shop today can be set up for under a million bucks, and anyone can do it. It's not available in limited supply. It's something that anybody can do. So we find that these firms are cropping up everywhere and are really democratizing speed. So that it's no longer only something that, for example, a privileged finance class can do. 
And it's not just the prop shops. I think that high-frequency players have introduced technologies that agency players are using. We, for example, use what we call FPGA chips, field programmable arrays, which are hardware instead of software to do many of the things we do at the TSX faster, more efficiently than we do with software. So effectively, you take a program and you take it away from writing it in C or any of these programming languages, Python, you put it on a chip, it's not only faster, from an ESG perspective, it's more efficient, it uses less electricity, it creates less carbon, it's fewer servers, there's less heat, all very good. This was something that was introduced to finance markets by the high-frequency traders. We would see that for more efficient data feeds. We learn from them constantly, and they get paid for being on the bleeding edge of some of the technology. Now, what are the benefits? Well, the biggest benefit is probably their ability to offset risk across the globe. So if you think about pre-2000, if I was trying to buy three, four, five hundred thousand shares of JP Morgan, there would be market makers who would be selling me stock and they would be trying to hedge themselves by buying stock in Morgan Stanley or Goldman Sachs or Bank of America. The high frequency traders today might be also hedging themselves by buying stock in Royal Bank of Canada or BMO or Royal Bank of Scotland or Lloyds Bank or Banco Santander. Well, the greater the opportunity to offset your market risk, the less impact a given order should have. And what we've seen is trade impacts for large institutional investors have continued to decline over the last 20 odd years as high frequency traders have come to the fore. They basically mute the volatility of single orders in large stocks. And again, these institutions are representing retail pension plan holders, mutual fund holders, RSP plans. And so they derive sort of an economy of scale by being able to bring this technology to four to find liquidity in greater, greater sources and bring it to the trade that you're trying to do. They get paid for doing that. So there was frustration when they first got to the market because they were doing very well and nobody could understand what they're doing. And that you talk about the morality of that. It's upsetting when you see a new technology and we're definitely seeing it with AI. We've been using AI. The street has been using AI for 15 years. All of a sudden in the last three months, it's become, oh my Lord, the world is going to change. I'm going to be out of a job. When spreadsheets were introduced in the late 80s, early 90s, there was talk that accountants would be out of jobs. No, within a couple of years, accountants were using spreadsheets to be more effective and to do a better job, not only to do the books and records, but to do forecasting that they couldn't do previously. So the idea that AI is going to drive all marketing people out of a job, no, they're going to use AI to do it more effectively. We're going to use AI to build better algorithms or order types or data feeds. This is the, the challenge with any new technology. We need to understand the fear. We need to understand the technology, but we also need to adapt. You don't want to be the guy that gets lapped by somebody who's understood technology and is using it to be more efficient. Now, not broke doesn't mean perfect. I don't want right. people to mistake us for writing some kind of pain to uh, high-frequency trading. One thing that a lot of these algo shops, particularly kind of the more mid-sized ones, I would say, rather than the large ones, and, and this industry is consolidated like any other, but some of them get known for a strategy called scalping. And this has become particularly sort of worrisome and talked about in some of the academic literature, of course. Scalping is when you watch the market and particularly watch for a market maker's orders and see if you can catch them when they're stale, when they have forgotten to update their bid and their ask, even though the market has moved on, even though there's new information. And then you catch them by filling them at their bid or filling them at their ask right when they don't want you to trade with them. This discourages market making, right? When they get scalped, they tend to leave your market and market makers are good for markets. We want to keep them there. So there was a lot of debate, a lot of attempts to seek evidence on what was more important uh, about high-frequency trading. The stuff that we've been talking about so far, you know, doing the same thing more efficiently or the enabling of scalping which is also doing the same thing more efficiently they didn't invent scalping but they sure got good at it with the signal processing you spoke about and the speed there was a big bunch of papers in the 2010s about high frequency trading there was the jones hendershot and minkfeld paper it's probably the one that everyone knows about best because it has the graph it's the graph of bid-ask spreads on NYSE from 2000 to about 2008 and you see them collapse we shouldn't forget that it used to be normal. I don't know if you got the Wall Street Journal when you were growing up, but I did. It used to be normal to report prices in units of eighths. 
and for the bid ask spread on the stock even to be as wide as 50 cents or a dollar. But after the high frequency traders come in and automate trading strategies that humans were doing before manually, you can see the spreads drop. And why? Why do they feel safe to quote tighter bid ask spreads? Because of exactly the signal processing and speed stuff we've been talking about already. They could do the same thing with lower risk. There were other studies, Brogard, Hendershot, and Reardon have a big one showing that HFTs improve price efficiency. They process signals and move prices faster to where they were going to go, and they measure this. With scalping, there were fears about scalping. A number of models developed in the public to show how scalping strategies work by Minkveld, by Budish, for example, the person who promotes batch auctions. There was a paper that we actually tried to write at the Bank of Canada, which Jonathan Brogard mentioned before, using the Canadian experience to respond to the fears about scalping, the opening of this new venue, Alpha, right? And what we found is that as 11 HFTs entered and started trading Alpha over the years, rather than seeing bid-ask spreads get wider, which is what you'd expect if they were mostly scalping, you actually see after every entry of each of these HFTs, the spreads get slightly, slightly tighter. More dramatic effects at first, of course. So this is kind of a cool little walkthrough what HFTs have done, although I save the best for last. The best critique of the benefits of HFT was done by Andre Shilko when he showed that when you interfere with the ability for some of these firms to communicate, you can actually improve liquidity a little bit. So when it's raining or snowing in between the microwave connections between New York and London, what Andre and his co-author show is that the bid-ask spreads improve. And you know you can see the idea here. This is exactly the sort of informative connection that would enable scalping, but not really enable any of the other strategies. But that's why we're having this whole conversation today. That's why we have multiple venues. That's why we have weird order types like speed bumps and limits, those are supposed to prevent scalping. And I think we're developing some stuff along those lines today, if I'm not mistaken. And if we bring it all full circle, what we've talked about so far is the HFTs show up in the mid-2000s. They are faster. They're catching signals. They're suddenly trading a wave of volume. And the incumbent marketplaces realized that they were going to cater towards the new marginal liquidity in the marketplace. And they went full bore into how do we make everything good for the HFTs and the retail trader and probably more so the institutional trader felt left out. They felt frustrated. Hey, what happened to me? I've been trading on this market. My firm's been trading on this market for a hundred years. You're going and talking to a firm that's been here for two months and building them an order type. And moreover, these are firms that make their profits off of short-term trading. But the job of a pension fund and an insurance company in a large bank is to take the savings not only yours and mine, but the savings of all the people in the world, and deposit them into useful, productive investments. So why were the exchanges prioritizing these newcomer HFTs? And it's because one HFT could do more in terms of net new volume on an exchange than 25 of these institutions could, and the HFT could do it the next day. Volume wasn't going to change from the institutions very quickly. But as we talked about, the pendulum swings and comes back and that played out but as the institutional investors and their agents the dealer community started using the same tools and understanding the same calculations and the same strategies they now become marginal players they can run data strategies they can run all kinds of strategies that'll create volume and trade very effectively and so what we've seen more recently with the IEXs and the intelligent crosses, and I would say the alpha speed bump in Canada, is exchanges starting to cater some of their activities, some of their venues, some of their order types to better servicing, particularly the institutional investor who has large orders that have very specific, unique needs. And that is kind of the nice, you know, it took a while, but we've gotten to a place of hopefully equilibrium where Everybody feels that they're getting serviced. HFTs, liquidity providers, are absolutely vital to the market. We've always had market makers. We don't want to be done with them. You talked about one specific set of strategies, the scalping strategies. Those tend to be the most, what we use the academic term, toxic. They are the ones that result in greater adverse selection. If a market maker or an institution 
can remove the 5% worst trades that they do in a given day, their performance is 50% better. And so giving order types and venues that help remove those scalping trades while they trade against liquidity providers that are tightening the spread, that are muting volatility, that are trading Bank of America versus Royal Bank of Scotland and muting your overall impact on the market is vital. And it's how do we create an ecosystem that has something close to, and you're never going to get optimal, but something close to the right level of market maker or intermediary participation versus large investor versus retail. And that's an evolving thing that'll never be perfect. And every time you get close to equilibrium, some new force comes to the market and you have to readjust. Doug, I feel like our conversation today should help people understand why TMX is right now experimenting with a new market and some new order types. We're experimenting with speed bumps because these protect market makers and incentivize them to offer tighter markets. We're experimenting with orders like Smart Limit and Smart Peg because these help institutions manage their orders and make sure that they don't get a fill that they didn't want to get because we can move their orders around a little bit for them. Of course, you know, these are experiments. We think that we're offering value to the market, but what's going to happen is that the market is going to tell us whether we've done a good job. And that's the game. We know that it's not necessary that all of these improvements will work. We think they might. One of our values is being client-centered, and that's what we're trying to do when we open up new venues and experiment with orders. As we said earlier in the show, whenever anybody offers a new venue or a new order type, if they can't tell you what problem they're trying to solve, who they're trying to solve it for, then it's probably just a me too player that's a tax on the industry. So hopefully what we're coming out with, we've identified the problem we're trying to solve. We've identified some logic and data as to how we're trying to attack that problem, who's feeling that problem or who has that problem, and why we think that problem is is worth addressing. We, as you say, though, we're accepting feedback from the street, and ultimately the street will vote with their commission dollars. And if they decide that our solution is of no value, they won't trade on the venue, and that'll be that. If we have delivered value, then they'll trade on our venue and we'll get paid. That's the way, you know. That's that's the way it's supposed to work. It's capitalism. That is capitalism. So we will leave it there. We thank the listeners. And as always, may all your imbalances be offset. Thank you all for listening to TMX Presents, the podcast, and of course, the sub-series that Doug and I are doing, which is called Crossing Intents. Thank you for joining us on the second episode of that. For more information on TMX Markets, visit tsx.com, or for the Montreal Exchange, visit m-x.ca. And for more insights from capital markets leaders and my other TMX colleagues, please visit tmx.com forward slash POV.